You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And today it is our pleasure to speak with Nigel Ayers of Nocturnal Emissions. Hello, Nigel. Hiya. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. It's very kind (laughs) of you to invite me. Well, we are very excited. Of course, we've had you on our list to talk to for a while, but the Mm -hmm. impetus really came because of the newly released electronic resistance book. Yeah. And it's an incredible collection of art, the history of nocturnal emissions. And we thought what better time to get you on the screen mm-hmm. and have a conversation with us. So yeah, let's just go ahead and get started with the book. Good. How did it come together? How did it? That's just how did, yeah. Well, Ross got in touch with me. I, I never never knew who Ross was or anything. He just got in touch with me out of the blue and suggested uh, making a monograph. So I uh, got my dictionary out and looked up the word monograph. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it's a collection of uh, a single artist's work. And so I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. Um so uh, we took it from there. And the, I mean, the strange thing, like, I mean, never actually knowing knowing him and he, him not knowing me, there was a tremendous amount of trust there from, from like very early on. Mm-hmm. And I think both of us, have, I mean, he's put an incredible amount of work into it and, uh, you know, a lot of sort of um, dedication and personal expense in, in, into it. So I'm just, I'm just amazed that that um, that it's been done really by that. Uh, an individual has sort of put that energy into it. Now, did you have all this archived in a nice, neat <laughs> space, or was did it take so, a lot of time putting this all together? Do you know what it was? Um, it was sort of let's say neat enough. <laughs> so that, yeah. <laughs> now, let's, what's that? Somehow, I managed to hang on to a lot of it. I don't know how because, like, uh, twenty maybe about thirty years ago, I, I, like I lost loads of things in a flood down here. Oh no oh. way! Yeah, uh, like all my, my master tapes all went in a flood, and like a, a lot of artwork went in a flood. Uh, and it, like I've moved, yeah, I've moved houses, and I'm sort of yeah, you know, sort of me living situation has never been really all that secure for you know for years. So. Um, I am quite amazed that I managed to hang on to so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything's in great shape and the scans are impeccable. Well, that's the that's the beauty of electronic technology, isn't it? I mean, you can make <laughs> you can make um was it a purse out of a sow's ear these days? <laughs> <laughs> I actually would like that purse. That sounds nice. <laughs> One of my favorite things is your introduction to the book and we'll just go back to those beginning days and you describe the living situation yeah, it was dying, and it's man. very <laughs> vivid. And even mm. down to the title of the album, fruiting body coming from coming straight wood. out of the wall. Yeah. 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 So I guess, can we get some more background on where were you guys living? How did this all start that we would love to hear about that beginning history of the pump into yeah. nocturnal I mean, emissions. I mean, I, I grew up in um, 
a very beautiful part of, of the UK, which is rural Derbyshire, which is like this peak district. It's, it's called a national park, but it doesn't like work the same way as an American national park does. And there's sort of there's lots of planning permission over what you can build and what you can't build. Uh, but the idea is to sort of preserve it as um, in a sort of like it was in 1850 seems to be the general idea. Mm. That seems to be the general architectural idea. So I grew up in this sort of quite um, growing up in, in, in the 60s and growing up in the 70s. It's, it's like you sort of missed all this sort of excitement, which might have occurred in the, in the late 70s. So I sort of uh, hit that and I grew up at a time of, of um, economic recession in the UK. So it was uh, it was quite rough, you know, quite rough and fairly violent. You know, it's very hard to... Every every punk musician from this era will just say, you know, you know what it was like, just how rough it was in the UK. And, the, you know, you, you didn't have much money, but there again, there was nothing to buy anyway, you know. <laughs> so... So, so very much it was a case of having to make your own entertainment because there wasn't there wasn't anything there really. Everything had to be made from scratch. And uh, one of the one of the nice things they 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 had going back then in the nineteen seventies, they had very progressive art schools in in the UK. And uh, I think probably what drew me into an art school wasn't through any sort of particular great tech. I mean, I know do all these collages and things, but in a way that wasn't really thought of as art. You know, art is uh, this, this handicraft with paint, you know, and, uh, you know, these, this, set, this skill set, which um, I didn't actually develop at that time. I mean, my, my skill set was always collage and I sort of, I could I could draw in that, but I, looking back, I, I could actually do it, but I didn't really have that sort of level of artistry that that uh, other kids at the art school seemed to have. Mm. But I was pretty good at I was pretty good at what I did, but it was very hard to describe what I did. If you see what I mean? And also back then, uh, I did uh, a, a foundation course in um, in art and design in this place called Chesterfield, which is a, a small mining town in the uh, Midlands. So I don't know if you're aware of the geography of the UK, the sort of, uh, there's these industrial areas in, towards the north of England where all the coal came from and all the industry happened. And it's like it's from that area where, I mean, Cabaret Voltaire is from Sheffield, which is like the nearest city. And then there's right. Manchester was the other nearest city, which is sort of, you know, you know about Manchester. And then, uh, of course, got Liverpool. So, I mean, I suppose that was a sort of big in inspiration as a kid that uh, in Liverpool, you know, these people from a, a very, you know, modest surroundings had had this colossal influence around the world through the medium of, of, of their art, but also expressed through pop, popular music. Um, so that sort of, there was that sort of inspiration. They'd sort of come through this art school system a bit. I mean, John Lennon had, had attended art school once or twice, mm -hmm. you know. But I mean, I mean, certainly um, there's a lot of sort of experimental. That was like a bit. It was it was a space for experiment rather than a, a, a space for. Uh, at, at the moment, I think art is very much a business. I think it's changed radically from that. Back then, it was a place of experimentation. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that sort of. Uh, that freedom that there was back then has sort of gone, and that um, 
that uh, tremendous laboratory it was back then. A lot of uh, like the minimal, the minimal, a lot of the minimalists that was their uh, audience was through the art schools, you know, just playing little gigs at the at the, uh, the art schools. Uh, performance art, such as uh, I mean, I can mention uh, welfare, the sort of street theatre, welfare state. There's a bunch of uh, avant-gardists. I mean, this is this is where you mm. were. There wasn't any there wasn't any money particularly, but it, it was this sort of breeding ground. And you know, so emerging from that, you get Roxy Music, you get uh, David Bowie, I suppose. You know, so it all sort of came from that. This um, this laboratory, I suppose, where people were people from very ordinary backgrounds, you know, not from an art background and not from a high class background, but from a mixture of backgrounds. And that's also changed now because entry into education has got very expensive these days. Back then it was very much grant supported. So I don't think there is this uh, juxtaposition of background, this juxtaposition of uh, working class culture with other cultures. I don't think it's there anymore. I might be wrong, but it, that just seems to be a change over the last, you know, forty years or so. But uh, so I went through this system anyway, so and uh, emerged in uh, 1978 to uh, um, the devastation of uh, <laughs> the 1970s, and uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher had just been elected. You'd got uh, what's his name? I think you got Reagan over there, you know, and just sort mm -hmm. of this uh, tremendous, um, it, this tremendous, this tremendous uh, ideological politics, this and these really huge divisions being made between uh, rich people and poor people was going on. Um, for for capitalism and neoliberalism, it was a tremendously revolutionary time for for what they were doing. I mean, I'll say they because it wasn't me, you know, <laughs> because it, <laughs> uh, but I mean, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't, I didn't really suffer from it in the way that I might have done growing up these days. I think um, people of my age have got it tougher than I had back then because then there was like this social, there was um, a safety net of social, social security that uh, sort of rescued us from complete destitution at, at a time of uh, almost total unemployment in this country. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I went through art, through art school. And like, uh, you know, people come out and think, oh, oh Damien Hirst did, did this sort of thing. So nowadays, or, you know, New York or whatever, they've got uh, Coons, whatever it is. They've got these role models for coming out at the end of it and they've got this sort of business plan. But uh Neither me nor my contemporaries had any of this, and I think a lot of us sort of blundered our way into into making music. Uh, yeah, so that's that's what happened. And uh, at the time I emerged from it, I think this sort of became the, the vector because that was the only out that was the outlet. There wasn't sort of it wasn't an open TV like there wasn't all these TV channels. There certainly wasn't any internet. Uh, publishing, you had, you know, there wasn't, um, there were gatekeepers everywhere, gatekeepers, gatekeepers, gatekeepers. So to do something yourself took a lot of uh, concerted effort uh, and focus, I guess. But uh, 
I think in the uh, ashes of punk rock, you know, there's this sort of zine zine uh, culture. And I think the, the the power of punk rock wasn't so much the music of, of punk rock, but it was this um, this opening up of different medias and access to medias from and out from outsiders, from people who were excluded from that beforehand, and just starting to seize control by whatever means necessary. So that was the background. Me, uh, I went through art school. I found myself working on a filling state. Oh, first of all, the first I worked in a factory. I worked in a cheese factory, where what uh, cheese? Well, they, cheese, uh, um, cheese. Uh, cheddar cheese and what they yes. did yeah it was it was in these big military bunkers in this place called Buxton which was where I'd grown up and what what this company did was they distributed this cheddar cheese like all around the UK but they get they get Irish cheese in in plastic boxes take it out of the Irish cheese box right right British cheese on it you know <laughs> <laughs> and they get these big blocks of cheese back from the supermarkets that were past their use-by dates mm-hmm. and put them in different boxes and send them <laughs> back again. But when he did that job, he got paid a lot more. So, you know, you stick with it for a bit, yeah. And, um, you know, people who might have been fired would say, yeah, you know, <laughs> you don't really want me to spread the word about what goes on in this place. Hush so like money. That, yeah, so that was my that was my first job out of art school, and then no, I tell you, my very first job offer was to go to Kenya and uh, have a free holiday in Kenya for a fortnight. Yeah, uh, but what I had to do was to swallow fourteen condoms full of hashish oil. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was my first career opportunity out of art school. That's quite a lot. <laughs> it is quite a lot, and it's very very dangerous. I do not advise it to anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, you know, I knew people. Like, this is this was like the job. This was the career opportunities at the time, and, and I knew a couple of people did this and survived. But, Wait, uh, is that where the condoms came from on that 12 cassette box set? <laughs> <laughs> the seminal emissions? <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah. But I, no, I, I, I turned down that that uh, opportunity. And uh, yeah, so I did, uh, what did I do? I did a cheese factory. And then uh, there was this idea of, uh, because of uh, job creation schemes. That was it. And so... Uh, if you've been unemployed for a certain amount of time, you know, they, they give you some work back in the community, sort of like, I suppose it's like community payback sort of thing in a, in a way. But so you had this sort of very low paid work. So I was, uh, we had this uh, Dutch elm disease at the time, like this huge, all the elm trees got wiped out over mm. a period of a few years, really. We used to have loads and loads of elm trees everywhere, you know, these very witchy trees uh, with, interesting bark but uh there was this sort of fungal disease came over and wiped wiped a lot of it out so my job there was as part of a, a crew was to attack these felled trees with a sharpened shovel to peel the bark off it and then pile the bark up and then burn the bark to stop stop this uh, disease spreading that was wow. uh, i did that for six months <laughs> Uh, just a just a 
you know, just up on the hills, really. Beautiful scenery, but absolutely mad job. And uh, it didn't really, it doesn't really work, you know. They're just hoping it would work, but it didn't really mm. work, you know. It's just like, you know, what do we do with these trees? We don't really understand this disease. What do we do? Oh, let's burn the bark, and then these beetles won't be spreading it. Uh, so, so I did that, and then the next thing I did was I, um, I worked on petrol pumps. So that's where the uh, the name the petrol the, the pump came from, and that's when you had attendants on on uh, gas stations. So wow. I did that. Yeah. So that's where that came from. Well, so I, was, I mean, it's it makes sense in a way. You art back art school into nefarious cheese factory work <laughs> into <laughs> diseased nature into gasoline attendant. He, oh. he, and now here we go. Makes, with, it makes sense now, yeah, doesn't it? It makes yeah. it, it all is coming together. <laughs> now we get the pump. Now. Yeah. now we get stale records. Yeah. And was it when you were at the when you were working at the petrol station that is when everything started musically? I was over, I was um, I saw a drifted. What did I do? I bought a I bought a synth around this time. Uh, my brother was uh, doing this very crude punk rock. He was he was trying to he'd sort of learnt about two chords. He'd like my younger brother was doing this. And I thought I thought, all right, yeah, and I'd like to do something. I haven't got, you know, I haven't got uh, I haven't got the aptitude to do it really, because I didn't sort I never I never took to uh, music theory or whatever. Uh but uh I did buy I, I bought a, a synth. And sort of looked at it and tried to figure out how to use it, and then I got uh, one of these copycat echoes with the, with a tape loop on the top. I got one of those as well, and I started sort of assembling um, equipment. And I also bought this hundred watt. Oh yeah, out of the, the there used to be this uh, paper called the Exchange and Mart, which is before you had the internet, before you had anything. There was this paper, and it's like full of tiny little small ads for everything. So like mm-hmm. one of these ones, 100 watt amplifier. All right, you know, and I thought, oh, however much it was, that was how much I had. So I thought, right, oh, this is what this is what bands use. They have these amplifier things, you know. I'll get one of these and see what it does. And it's like this metal box that came back. So then I had to sort of find a speaker to plug into it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I had to sort of figure it out, really, because uh, – I think record stores were quite intimidating. Not music stores, what do you call it? Musical equipment place. They're quite intimidating mm-hmm. places. And, you know, if you can't sort of sit in there playing Stairway to Heaven all day, you know, you're, sort of, you're intimidated by this, which I'm, I was, yeah. I still am. Yeah. When did, <laughs> so when did Caroline Kay come into the picture? Uh, uh, Caroline, I'd known from way back in Chesterfield. And, uh, at Chesterfield Art School. And um, one of the beauties of that place was uh, they had this this place called a light and sound studio. And they had uh, set up, they had these four carousel projectors and they were synced to a four-track um, TIAC, I think it was a TIAC 3340 machine. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it's... It couldn't have been quadraphonic sound. I think it was like three channels of quadraphonic sound, or it could have been quadraphonic sound. And I think they used the fourth channel to trigger off these uh, projectors and things. So you could rig it up that way. And I was 
I was from very early on at that stage. I was uh, making sound collage, really, with with from cassettes, recording things off the TV, and recording with friends. And and uh, somebody, I had a Revox in the studio. You know these reel to reel Revoxes. So like they told us how to make an echo on that. So I did they did yeah you know, this sort of tape echo. And they also had these um, EMS synth in there. You know, the legendary EMS synth, oh, yeah. as, it, as it became. I mean, back then, that was what they had in, in uh, schools, really. Right. This, uh, because it wasn't, it was more of a technological thing than a musical instrument. And mm. uh, I couldn't really figure out how to use it. You know, you sort of put a few pins in it and it sort of buzzes a bit, you know, that sort of thing. I couldn't get my head around it. Caroline got her head around it very early on. And she um, she was in an art school. She was in Ravensbourne, which was in London. And I just uh, I just been talking about her. And she she was visiting. She was back with her visiting friends or something back in this town where she'd grown up. So uh, we actually met up one night and got very very drunk. And um, she, she was just about to finish her course, and uh, she invited me down. She she did this. Um, she was doing photos at that time of uh, very bland exteriors, black and white exteriors of doorways, very bland doorways, you know, you know nothing nothing mm. elaborate, just sort of places that could be anywhere. But they had different captions underneath saying, like, uh, such this certain murder happened here or something like that, which, you know, gave an emotional connection to these very bland spaces. Mm. It, you know, so... Things she'd made up, and they weren't really like that. I mean, this is this was the bed sit where she lived that she'd put this this on. So, uh, so she thought, yeah, what I want like to do. I think we both seen um, when we were in Chesterfield. We've seen a lot of uh, the experimental films. That was that was a good place to get uh, exposed to to films because they'd, they'd hire these films on 16 millimeter and they sort of, you know, they t this was the circuit that they'd go around from, uh, I think they probably got them from London Filmmakers Co-op at that time. But uh, one of them was uh, this Michael Snow, this filmmaker. He did this film called Wavelength, which is sort of, a, it's a masterpiece of minimalist cinema, but we'd, we'd seen this and it's what it is. It's a zoom through like a, a loft, like these New York loft spaces. It appears to be a zoom from like way back. And eventually it sort of focuses on this little photograph of a, of a sea, of a seascape. Mm. And in the middle of, I don't know, it's a 20 minute film. It's like a 20 minute film that seems like a 40 minute film. I mean, a lot of people don't sit the way through it, but in the minute, in, in the course of it, dramatic action takes place <laughs> and you're just sort of aware of this peripheral activity. But all the, all the time there's this sine wave playing as, 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 as a camera zooms up. Um, I don't think it actually does zoom up because of the nature of, of the medium. It would there would have been some trickery involved in you know in the editing to make it appear to be zooming at that time. But um, I think this film had made a big impression on her, and it made, it made a big impression on me really. So uh, she just said she said she got this exhibition coming up. Did want to come down and uh, could you borrow my synth and I could do a sine wave for it? So yeah, all right, yeah, I'll do that. So uh, I went down and visited her, and uh, like, I'm doing this absolutely tedious job on 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 the 
you know, petrol on the gas station on the on the petrol pumps, Kennings mm. of Bakewell, it's still there, but they don't have attendants doing the donkey work now. <laughs> I think it's still there. I sort of moved into uh, where Caroline was. She was falling out with a boyfriend at the time, and uh, it's getting really squalid. Really, <laughs> it's just a really squalid relationships were going off, and it's like hell, really. But uh, uh, I, in about a week in London, I met up with all these people that I'd, I'd met sort of in passing or, or people I really got on with when, when I'd been a, uh, a student, both in Chesterfield. And I also went to this place near Bath in the West Country. And I was just bumping into these people just while I was out and about or just down the pub. And like um, somebody used to live with my mate in, in Liverpool. I just bumped into him down there. And um, so I thought, well, it's sort of meant to be. I need to, yeah, I need to move into London and uh, get a bit of stimulation, really. And um, one of the, the one of my old friends who was down there was uh, at Chelsea Art School at the time. He said uh, that uh, they got these. He was squatting in in one of these houses in Lilford Road. He was like two doors down, and he said there was a place going down there that I could I could move into. So I thought, oh, yeah, all right, yeah. And um, it's sort of generally, uh, yeah, I, I sort of moved in there, moved into this one house on the end, which is by this railway. It's like half a house. And didn't have, I didn't have water. Anyway, it was flooded when I moved in. You know, there was no facilities oh. whatsoever. No facilities whatsoever. You know, that, <laughs> there was a toilet out the back, you know, so we had to connect it up with um, rubber hose pipe and stuff to because to, it was just like a, it was just like a pipe coming out of the floor and, and water would oh the funny thing was water was come, like spewing out of the floor and the funny thing was uh the electricity was connected up uh, when 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 um, electric comes into a house it goes to a big fuse which is called a header fuse and we're on a higher voltage than you are like um we got 240 volts coming in mm. uh but there when it's, I think it's when the head of, when it hits the head of fuse, there's no fuse in between there and this distribution centre. So, like that is a dangerous place, right? This this little house was connected up. Somebody twisted some wires together and shoved them into this place where the head of fuse should go, and it was connected up with a sock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it a great protection. Sock yeah. <laughs> So, in a uh, damp place. <laughs> yeah. So th- this is the setting for yeah. not only that. Yeah. Not only that. Oh, now anyway. So we sort of tried to. Uh, not only that. I just try and figure it out. It's, it's a Carolina. She's got this brilliant technical head on it. So mm-hmm. um, we got this uh, book that was that was uh, called uh, Self Help House Repair Handbook, which was designed for people moving into short-term housing, as mm. this place was technically short-term housing. Because uh, what had happened was it wasn't really squatted. It was sort of nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted these properties, mm. if you see what I mean. So yeah. uh, there was, you know, it was, yeah, just you could just one just wander into places and you might get an eviction notice every now and again but then you had to, you know negotiated with the council the local council had no money so they couldn't do anything with it property developers didn't want it because it was a deprived neighborhood and perceived as uh, perceived as quite dangerous because I mean there was yeah you know, 
we moved in there. That was when these riots kicked off in 1980. There'd been riots there before, but uh, mm. there was a tremendously racist police force, and they they uh, objected to the West Indian community, and uh, it was just uh, it was tremendous racism, which which, which was um, it kicked off at more or less the time that it moved down there. So the electric was all connected to a sock. There was a wire down the garden. I was doing, I was doing digging the garden. I thought, oh, we'll grow some carrots. I asked to put it in the book, into that, growing the carrots, like these oh mutant God. carrots in, the, oh, in this really uh, high, high leaded, so, highly leaded soil. And there was a wire going down the garden. And they were getting their electrics from, the, from, the, from this same place that was connected with a sock. Um, so... <laughs> Caroline did her research and she found this thing called a header fuse somehow. Mm-hmm. And we thought, right, we resolved, put this in. It'll be, you know, it'll be safer for everybody if we put this in. So uh, I think I put it in. But I had Caroline was sort of standing by with this long broom to sort of push and uh, rubber gloves. You know, it's got, got me rubber gloves on. <laughs> Wellington, I'm about to borrow some Wellington boots as well, you know, to sort of replace this this fuse and to, to make it safe. And uh, because, you know, it was an unofficial occupancy, we couldn't have done this sort of the legitimate way in any way because it, and also it was like this this other house down the road was getting electricity from the, from the same place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but we sort of pieced things together. And like over the course of several years, you know, we sort of patched things up and repaired them. And um, I tell you, I moved into that house after after we we moved to this bigger place, which I've got a scale model of just on oh, my shelf. Ooh. I made a scale model of this because it was so yeah, amazing. So, well, it's it's lockdown. You know, you do this weird shit when it's lockdown. Can you see that? Kind of see us in yes. a reflection, but yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've got a reflection. I mean, I've got light in there. Oh, that's oh wow. Great. That looks great. That's really good. <laughs> that's actually what I picture every place in, yeah. in uh, early 80s UK is where everyone lived. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like terraced houses. These were built at yeah. like the, the end of the Victorian. Yeah. Like, and sort of down the terrace would be like a, a railway bridge going through with a, a tra- railway. And whenever whenever a train went past, such as uh, you know the mortar between the bricks, it was all dust and all the dust would sort of <laughs> oh come my out. God. And that whole place used to shake. So like there's those very early recordings of the pump. You know, you got these trains going past, <laughs> and the whole place is shaking. And I think we were very very drunk when we were doing them as well. But uh, yeah, so I mean that so that formed the sound and um, the the house on the end. The windows were, were covered in uh, plywood boards, you see. They were, it was boarded up. There was, there was no light came through. So it was a sort of an intense claustrophobic, claustrophobia in, in that particular place. And then, uh, yeah, we moved to this this other place, uh, that one, number 90, when uh, I was I was there about nine years, I think. Yeah. And so that's... This is the background of the beginning, and this is make all of this makes so much sense, especially for the sounds and especially for the art mm-hmm. at the yeah. time. Now, when did you start making contacts and connections of other like-minded artists, bands? How did you start discovering uh, oh, bands yeah. in in that world? That was that was. Uh... That was interesting because, like back then, there wasn't a noise scene, right? There was, there, yeah, there wasn't what 
there wasn't these connections that there are these days. Um, I think probably the only the only band that anybody heard of that sort of ilk would be Throbbing Gristle, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, they you know they were they were famous because they'd uh, done this. They were in all the newspapers at, at one stage, and they you know they they made made a band on 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 the back of that. Uh, but uh, there wasn't really a space for anywhere else. You know, they they wouldn't. I mean, I think they come across as sort of uh, quite sort of ex- in a way they came across as quite extremist in what they were doing, but um, uh, their actual live sound sort of wasn't that at all. If you know what I mean, it wasn't. Com- it was. I whenever I saw them, I don't think they didn't find them confrontational in any way. I picked up a artist newsletter, which is uh, just an art magazine. Uh, full of opportunities, you know, the sort of opportunities which which I was sort of completely incapable of following. But there was this um, this open uh, male art exhibition, you know, um, correspondence art exhibition, which was happening in Greenwich, which is sort of in London. Uh, and they were allowing everything in. You know, there was, you know, no submissions criteria and everything that went into it was going to be exhibited. So I thought, well, they'll probably include some of my stuff in then in that case. Uh, uh, so I went down there and they did, you know, it's all in a, it's all in a glass, all this stuff was in a glass case. And in the glass case next, I, I sent it, I wasn't actually doing visual art then. I, it was, uh, what I sent in was, was a cassette tape, but it was a f- the first pump tape. I sent them that with you know the, the Xerox flyers, which is on page whatever it is in the book. Uh, I sent them that in, and that was sort of that was sort of framed on the wall, sort of thing, with in this big glass case. Oh, cool! So I went down there, and I I hadn't got any uh, contacts with any in the mail artwork world then either. But I mean, I had been sending postcards backwards and forwards to friends, and sort of strange packages you know just sort of um, to amuse myself and 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 uh, you know a small circle of friends mm. for several years i've done that you know people i'd grown up with and become separated from you know we kept in touch through uh, very you know lo-fi collages and just sort of jokey imagery sort of a thing so i was sort of in the way of doing that anyway and uh but there was one box was one of these uh, showcases was full of uh, these pieces from uh, Vittore Baroni, Vittore Baroni, who in Italy. And so I wrote down this address, and you know, and he he said he was doing this. Uh, he was doing this mail art magazine on the, which was sort of working on this on the same grounds. And what you did was you you sent him a um, hundred copies of of a work of art, or like could be photocopies of stuff, and he'd staple together. These uh, regu- quite regular magazines, which are sort of open submissions, whatever he got, he would if he had a hundred, you know, he'd staple them up, and that would be the edition. And he did this really regularly for several years. And um, so, so that there wasn't really a gatekeeper to that, really, because he was like anything he got, he would mm. he would put out. So that was sort of an entry point into that because. Like I say, I felt excluded from this work. Even though I've been through the art school system, I felt excluded from it because my interests were 
a minority interest within the interests of that. And just was this, this intense um, paranoid vibe, I suppose, that I was picking up on. I think it was getting very much um, anesthetized or aestheticized in, in the work of artists at that time. I you know, it was very, very abstract, if you see what I mean. It wasn't sort of, I was, there was, I mean, I guess there were some, uh, if there was anything sort of to do with everyday life, I missed it anyway, whatever it was that I could relate to. I was missing it really. I mean, I had some good, good friends doing, doing it, but I couldn't quite understand. It wasn't what I would, what I could understand. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah. May lot. So I was getting these packages from Vitor Baroni. So I sent him a um, hundred copies of uh, copies of something. Well, I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was these flyers that went with the pump. Uh, I sent him that, and then he got he uh, put me in touch with Maurizio Bianchi. Okay, I was no, that, I was going to assume that that was yeah. how you ended up getting in touch with yeah. MB. That is that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I never actually met Maurizio, but uh, I, mean, I, sp- I think I spoke to him on the phone or a couple of times and you know, I was in cor- regular, regular, regular correspondence with him. He used to, he used to send, uh, send me a tape and a Polaroid maybe every week for oh, a couple so of years. Cool. Wow. Yeah. And he was, he was doing this. I was getting a tape every week. I think Simon, Cra- Simon Crabtree, Balvenese Quark, he was getting one every week. I think Graham Revel was getting one every week. I think, uh, I might be wrong. I think Brian Williams was getting one. Like, Maybe every week, every fortnight or something, and he just run off these cassettes and, and these Polaroids, and they'd sort of send them to us, and uh, you sort of receive them with amusement, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, so, and and they get taped over, you know. They just it, it, uh, well, I've got no space to hoard things, you know. You just just didn't hoard things. You sort of, or you pass them on to a friend or something. But uh, yeah, I mean. After I did my first record, uh, Rizzo got into. He said, "Oh, you've done a re- done a record. Can, um, can you can I can I do a record on your label?" I thought, "Well, I haven't really got a label, you know." <laughs> I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose I can call it a label. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was, he was he was paying for it all. And I thought, well, if it's on my label, I ought to put some money towards it. And I had a little bit of, you know, I had a bit of cash left over, so I, I chipped in some towards it. And I was going to get my second record made at that time anyway, so I thought, well, might as well do this third record. I think he was w- wanting to do 100 copies. He said, like, how much is it? 50 copies or something like that. And I just worked out, oh, let's make it 250 or something, whatever it was. So we did that, you know, and do it in a proper and, sleeve. And you just happened to put out one of the absolute classic albums <laughs> of industrial music with the MBA in addition to the This is early... what yeah, I mean, this is what people are telling me. This is what you this is what I hear these days, you know. I mean, at the time, <laughs> at the time you know, it was received, you know, it's received. I mean, at that time, um records were selling a hell of a lot back then. I think that was the thing. I think it's they sold in the tens and hundreds of thousands vinyl records. So mm-hmm. to just to, to sell a hundred copies of, of a record didn't actually make any sort of an impression, you know. And you think, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I thought it wasn't really valued at the time, and I, I don't think anybody was particularly bothered about it at the time. If it is a classic, I mean, it is a classic. As people are very interested in it now, yeah. Do you still have a copy? 
I've got one upstairs, yeah, I think. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> You Did still have four copies? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Dad, Did you feel but, uh, like kinship with, say, Cabaret Voltaire, Throbbing Gristle, or like Bourbonese Qualk and Lusmord? Was there was well, there a yeah. sense of that you know at what? that time? Uh, do you know what? Cabaret Voltaire, I um, like I said, I lived in the Peak District, and like the biggest town was Sheffield. So I, 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 I got... Very occasionally, because it's like the tran- there's no transport, so I don't know. Maybe I got my dad to pick me up from, you know, I talked my dad into picking me up late at night or something. But mm. uh, I went to, I think I went to see the pop group or pop group and the Good Missionaries, maybe in Sheffield, and uh, and also, oh yeah, also went, oh, um, and I also went for. Um, yeah, Cabaret Volta. They were supporting Susie and the Banshees, and also on the bill was a was a a mate of mine who had, who had met who is uh, called Spiz, who did uh, Spiz Energy and Spiz Oil. Uh, I think one of his rec- one of his songs, "Where's Captain Kirk," was actually covered by REM. Can you believe it? For well, like their Christmas <laughs> their Christmas flexi single. But it's lovely, lovely, lovely bloke, and he was roadieing for. Um, various bands and he 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 had this act he just got on i think he just jumped on stage at, at a, an early ban, banshees gig and just played he wasn't on yeah you know, wasn't supposed to but he just plugged his guitar and got on with it uh and uh he he roaded for the banshees and he roaded for the clash at that time and he was he was getting me into gigs so i got to see the clash with suicide supporting them in about oh, wow. some Oh man! I mean, suicide blew the clash off stage. They really did. No question. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't go down too well with the audience, though. Like the clash audience. I mean, back then the punks. It was. I think the punks went through this uh, leather jackety stage, you know, and they were sort of very. Uh, they went through this very macho stage for a while, mm. and they're all ch- chucking pint glasses at. Uh, at glass pint glasses at uh, Alan Vega, you know, and he's. His arms all cut up. I remember he's, he's just he's like he's a shiri shiri blood gushing down his arm. You know, wow. <laughs> when they gone, to, you know, I think there was this sort of um, very uh, rigid mindset amongst uh, amongst punk because it's very confrontational times. You know, I think um, there was mm. uh, various subcultures. I mean, uh, that were all sort of at one another's throats. I mean that. The teddy boys used to attack the punks, and the mods used, to, yeah, the, the mods used to. Different bits of working class culture, youth would attack other bits of uh, working class culture. The, the bikers would beat the punks up. This sort of thing, you know. I think the the punks were sort of really bottom of everybody used to beat the punks up. I suppose <laughs> back then, yeah, it was quite. It's quite a dangerous, um, yeah, mode of mode of going about things yeah so anyway yeah so so spiz was uh he was it got me into this this gig with it which was banshees and cabaret volta and he and him yeah he was on it and this was in a top rank suite in sheffield and he introduced me to the human league before they were famous which is which you know they were sort of they were sort of hanging around sort of being moody sort of thing, just having a private conversation. Oh, 
oh, this is a human league. All right. And then mm-hmm. uh, he introduced me to Cabaret Voltaire. And he says, oh, well, he says, I'm Malvin. He says, why are you called Cabaret Voltaire? I says, I don't really know, really. <laughs> 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 and he says, uh, yeah, he says, and then I met up with him. Yeah, later I met up with him at this um, pop group gig and uh, I was chatting I was chatting to quite a few people because like everybody in the audience was in uh, one of these uh, Sheffield bands really because <laughs> there was dozens of them that suddenly sprung up I must have mm-hmm. I don't know Addie Newton seems to think I met him at that time the out of clock DVA I, I don't know whether I did meet him at that time but uh, certainly but Mal um, he invited me to use his studio in Western Works and I think I don't think I'd even bought that synth by then. You know, I was sort of I was just saying, you know, this is what I'd like to do. And he's like, oh, yeah, come along, come along. Because I was just there just wasn't that interest. But somehow or other, this um network was sort of starting to grow in in, in Sheffield, I guess. And um, and I suppose um that sort of linked in with uh, these various pockets around the country. You know, when did you end up getting in contact and, and meeting up with SPK when they came over there? I went to maybe four or five of the last Sobbing Gristle gigs. The thing was, everybody was saying, oh, you must, ah, oh, you're just like Throbbing Gristle. You want to see Throbbing Gristle? Well, so I think the first time I saw them, I went actually went to sleep. This was like in the YMCA. I slept through it. I thought, well, you know, you should play this hypnosis uh, tape at the end so you've yeah, just yeah. had a really relaxing experience uh, mm. yeah I have you know <laughs> not sure what it was I missed it <laughs> so I had to go and see him again because I obviously missed the entire show <laughs> so yeah so I had to go and see them again so I saw them a few times I think they were sort of more exciting on paper than they actually were in real life if you see what I mean although I mean I mean Genesis was sort of a dynamic personality like by yeah by anybody's standards I guess there was a sort of it's sort of it's like a one-off, really, but um, as a as an outfit, um, you know that you could go to sleep to it, I suppose. Yeah, but um, so I went to went to see a thing they did in uh, this in Heaven, which is this big nightclub in uh, I think it's still going in London. There's um, footage of that show. Yeah, Derek, uh, I've Derek seen Jar- footage of that Derek- show. Derek Jarman uh, did it on Super 8. He, he filmed it right. on Super 8 mm-hmm. that night, yeah. Uh, so so I went to see, who was it, a certain ratio on, was was on as well. Um, so I went to see, so I went to see Sobbing Gris, and SBK were called Surgical Penis Clinic back then, so I had to see right. them, you know. I think uh, SBK at that stage were doing what I was expecting from the hype Sobbing Gristle to be doing. I was reading up this uh, interview that uh, I thought it must have been Graham and Dominic had done from SBK with this Chainsaw magazine. And I think they probably embroidered the story quite a bit, but um, I could see there was there was a, a body of ideas behind what they were doing. And they used to probably be... But also I was so impressed by what they did as a live performance because uh, mm-hmm. it's, they were, I mean, they weren't doing the meat stuff then. It was just like... They got this AKS synths for a start. Nobody had AKS synths. Uh, we, we'd we'd used them, but I mean, like only Delia Derbyshire or whatever would not, not Delia Derbyshire tapes, didn't she? Very few people would use an AKS synth. Um, Brian Eno used one in Roxy Music, you know, and that and 
it was it was historical then, you know. This is like probably one we we're talking 1981, so that's a 10 year old synth, and you know, time moves fast, so it mm-hmm. looks like it's from ages ago, ages and ages ago. So it's like they got three of these on stage, you know, and uh, you just know these are non these are non musical instruments, and they got this powerful driving beat with it, and I think the the combination of this driving beat with the noise. Um, it just made a made a definite impression. Which sort of it did, you know. It, it bypasses stuff really. It uh, it um, it bypasses the critical facilities faculties in a way mm-hmm. that uh, probably heavy metal music doesn't do. That that raw noise and driving beat. And v- back then it was a it was a very very alien to to hear this repetitive you know, this repetitive, repetitive beat. I mean, that was, that wasn't being done, you know. This is, this is, you know, faster than disco, you know. This is a breakbeat speed they were playing. I guess the set would, it would have been that SP, they probably did that SPK singly, SPK, 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 okay. Right. They probably did that and they probably did Befell, don't worry, no, that's one of mine. They did uh, Baruch for the bot, probably, I don't know. Is it, they'd, um, but uh, I wrote to them. And about six months later, I said, you know, I'm, get, I'm doing this record. About six months later, after I'd done the record, um, Graham eventually got back to me. So we've gone back to us. Oh, sorry, you all just got, just got round. <laughs> I just got round to, to getting back to you. I was reading his, his, his writing. just, you know, it's illegible. They said, so I said, what's that word, Caroline? Loggy ties. It's logistics. All right, logistics. <laughs> oh, it's due to logistics, you know, not being able to get in touch with you. Loggy ties. <laughs> Oh, his writing was terrible. So, but um, we'd got this, we'd got this gig lined up in Brixton in this railway arch, which was uh, 1981, and uh, was it a Thursday night, it's Thursday night or a Friday night? So, I said, yeah, you must come down to it. I mean, we need an audience anyway, you know. I mean, it's got, like, <laughs> got about. I've got, I've got a mate who's got a strobe. He'll be there. There'll be these. Uh, There'll be the hippies that run the place. They'll be there, you know. I have to mm-hmm. sort of get them out of the way before I can play because they'll be fanning around, tuning, you know, playing some something acoustic or something or other. Um, <laughs> so, oh, it'd be nice to have somebody. Yeah, it'd be nice to have to meet these guys anyway because I was just such a a powerful. Look. I mean, that, they look like the Viet. They look like they're completely shell shocked Vietnam mm-hmm. veterans back then. They just look like the you know they. Out of apocalypse now, they were just sort, of, you know, with this, this, yeah. Anyway, they made an impression. I mean, because um, by that time, let's say throbbing gristle were a fashion statement. They'd become a fashion thing. This is this is sort of a new romantic thing. You know, they got designer uniforms, mm. and they're playing heaven, which is just sort of gay night spot as well. So they, yeah, it sort of fitted in with that. Uh, uh, a certain ratio with also this they're reinterpreting this uh 60s soul sort of thing to to that sort of new romantic audience so there was this there's a very much it's sort of fa- it was very fashionable 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 if you see what i mean and uh but uh i mean these guys they just sort of you know they just come back from the war sort of thing you know <laughs> it's just <laughs> It's all an act, <laughs> but it was a very convinced. It wasn't totally an, an act. It was. I mean, they're, they're from Australia, you know. They come <laughs> over from Australia thinking there's a big industrial scene in in the UK, 
And they were just, you know, because they'd read it, they'd seen it from uh, NME, you know, New Musical Express, all the reports mm. they've had of it, and the reports they'd had of maybe Joy Division or something. So they thought, oh, it'd be great coming to the UK. You know, it's wide open for, you know, post-punk sort of a thing. You know, we're going to, we're going to, oh, you know, Nick, the birthday party's gone over there as well. They're really popular. You know, we'll go over. We'll get really popular, really popular. We'll get really popular. So they went over and uh, they, they did this single with. <laughs> they done the slogan with with industrial. So they're oh, oh yeah, it's great. We've done this with a proper proper label. They got five quid for that, you know. <laughs> and the the printers wouldn't the printers wouldn't even print the sleeves. They had to get these stickers made up with the it, the, the sleeves. Got this. Uh, it's a, I think it's a sex change operation, some sort of a penis operation with a, an iron bar going through the sort of, I don't know if, you know, some sort of plastic surgery to the penis anyway. Um, but the printers wouldn't touch that, so I had to photocopy it and sort of individually stick these on to, to the singles. So they thought, they were, oh, you know, they thought, oh, this is great, this is a great big industrial scene in, in the UK. Big time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, there wasn't. And I think they probably sold a couple of thousand of this this uh, single and got five pounds in payment or something like that. Something ridiculous, you know. Well, they, were quite, they were quite disappointed that. So, you know, it'd probably be better if we do it ourselves, really. So they thought they did the sums like what well, I, mean, I did the sums as well. I mean, it's um, it was for made more sense to make a, a, a big record than a little record because uh, that's. <laughs> Because you could get so much more material, and you could sell it for so much more, and get more ideas over in a twelve-inch form than you could in a, in a six-inch form. Plus, you know, you can get the pictures on the sleeve, and you know, it, it, um, so it, it cost as as much to do a, a small run LP as it did to do a, a slightly larger run single, and you didn't have to be so tight about what went on it. So you could get your money back from it. Really, that was the thing. So uh, they, yeah, they've got that idea, and uh, I thought they uh, showed up at this this gig that we did in Brixton, an Atlantic Road, Brixton, in the railway arch. <laughs> so all right, we've got this gig lined up. Oh, they're coming to see us. Oh, they're my favourite band at the at the moment. Oh, we've got to do this. Oh, uh, and Giles is bringing his strobe. Yeah, we'll, do, we'll have a strobe on. That'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> so like that week. Um, what was it? The, the police arrest. They, the, 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 uh, they had this police tactics called Swamp 1980, which was co- to completely rid the, the streets of criminal elements. And there was a very, very high profile police presence in Brixton. They were driving these riot vans around all the place and um, just stopping and searching black people at random. And uh, I think somebody got stabbed or something and the police weren't going to take them to the hospital or something like that happened. And these riots kicked off and all of Brixton was burning, you know, cars on fire. I think there might be some of the, it might be some of the photos we took down there, but that was, this was like where we got the gig <laughs> in, the, in the, the street. <laughs> yeah, the street was the, the Atlantic Road and Railton Road was called the front line back then. You know, this is sort of uh, poets like uh, uh, Linton Quissy Johnson. You know, he's he lived in the neighbourhood. He's 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 written a lot of poetry about it. Um, so uh, yeah, so all this sort of kicked off, 
And there's, you know, rocks all over the place and all the windows are smashed. And the place that we went to do the photocopies, it's, it was, it was, uh, yellow, it's called clearer print. And you have this like yellow plastic frontage to it. And all this yellow plastic had all sort of melted off like this. Oh my God. So, uh, wow. but, uh, great photo opportunity, though, you see. So Perfect did- <laughs> setting for <laughs> industrial music. Uh, yeah. I know. And uh, so we did these sort of quite exploitative photos while we were wandered out. I take, oh, there's Caroline in front of uh, the burnt out car, you know, and that sort of thing. But yeah, perfect setting for it. So then the, yeah, these, so that was like where our meeting was like in this railway arch in the middle of it. It was just sort of dying down sort of thing. And then we sort of went to the pub afterwards and uh, they were very disappointed and disillusioned with their, 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 uh, I suppose, with their first foray into the UK because nobody was really in. I think I, I think me and Caroline were the only people who were in that audience in heaven who were really particularly interested in what they were doing. So uh, we linked up. And we were very, I think we are very much uh, in, a, very much in, a, in a minority. It was very hard to find this sort of uh, this uh, enthusiasm for noise and this enthusiasm for uh, avant-garde music, but th- this avant-garde in a sort of a very politicised sense, if you see what I mean, this sort of this idea of breakthrough, which um, which obviously came through from... Uh, from uh, mental patients union and that sort of thing. That's that's the sort of ideas that they were dealing with. This um, insanity being a sane response to a world which has gone crazy, and just sort of looking at this crazy world. You know, what do you make of it? I mean, this is this is you know this is looking this book electronic resistance is looking at this crazy world. You know, and uh, got the nudists in Disneyland, but you know. You know, behind this facade are all the shopping malls and that. This is a, this is all the crap that goes on, and um, yeah, you know, this is the this is where the people live who work in these shopping malls and who clean up. You know, keep the place clean and that. This is a, this is the marginalised uh, people. Oh, poor me, sort of thing. I suppose it's a lot of poor me. Uh, but uh, yeah, but at, so- at the at the time, were you just were you guys just really day in and day out working on nocturnal emissions, working on sterile, working on the art. Was it a joy's ev- laboratory? Yeah. Was it just an everyday thing for you guys at that time? Well, uh, at this particular time I was working in the mornings. I was working as a cleaner in Goldsmith's school of art. I was uh, cleaning all the, 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 the toilets and like the bottom stories of it and the bar, the student union bar of this art school every morning. And uh, then sort of going back to uh, this typewriter, that's me in front of the typewriter back there. And back then, you know, there. Oh, yes. so that, yeah. So uh, I was writing lots of letters, just sort of making these network connections back then, I guess, to. Certainly from the, I did a small edition cassette as the pump. Was it the pump? Yes, it was the pump. And I sold that. In, I took that into rough trade, just thinking, just see what happens sort of thing. And somehow or other, that, went, that managed to go all around the world. I think uh, Mertzbau picked up a copy in Japan Excellent. somehow, from, somehow from that sh- shop in North London. Somehow it made it up, its way over to Tokyo. 
So he was in touch with me back then. Peter was in touch with me. Um, people, I, I, I just wrote to anybody who might be vaguely interested, you know, the, you know, the fans in the Cabaret Voltaire sort of fans in so industrial news people. They, they published lists of, of uh, people who'd sent them tapes. I sort of wrote to the people there and right. sort of, you know, mm. sort of followed that up sort of more just sort of to, to see what was going on, just to, just to find a context. I suppose it is to find a context, to find an audience, because um, certainly the, I didn't really know many people around me who was into this kind of thing, you know, even, even in that situation. But as it turned out, um, like SBK, they were up in, in Vauxhall, which is like two miles away from me. So they'd, um, they weren't far. And then within maybe six months later, uh, Simon Crabb out at Borbenings Court, they moved in, uh, they moved into the area. I don't know if they, I think he was going to, to art school or something, but he was in touch with me and they moved into the area. Like we helped them find them somewhere to live anyway. And, uh, you know, they, they sort of, they were around the corner. I saw a lot of him, that band. And, uh, and then also I was working at one uh, annex of Goldsmiths and at the other annex, the test department were, you know, beginning there. And then there was, on the way to where SBK were living then, later, I think it was probably later, portion control were, were living up, up there. And there's just, uh, I think there was a sort of gravitation to that kind of South London area. Oh, and uh, David Tibet was living in the, the same block, uh, Bonington Square. Any anxiety was there. There's, uh, yeah, uh, Andrew McKenzie, I think I've met him. I don't know where I met McKenzie. I've I'd, I'd sort of known him for eight. I don't know where I met him. Um, and uh, they were sort of moving into Bonington Square around there. Uh, Steve Stapleton, that was funny because... Uh, when I put the first record out, it went through this pressing plant in North London, which was uh, the same pressing plant which was used by the reggae labels. Tro Trojan Records used it, but I mean they sort of they take yeah they press anything, and uh, the guy at the pressing plant he gave a white label over to uh, the guy United Dairies because that was the only strange record they put out. So they thought <laughs> <laughs> so the pressing plant put. Uh, um, is it John Fothengale and uh, Steve Stapleton on to me? Uh, yeah, so that sort of network network came on, and then uh, the or we did this uh, little show with uh, SBK in this place, this crypt, and uh, the PA didn't turn up. This was in this youth club, uh, sort of a church youth club in central London, and for some, yeah, you know, the, I think they would just weren't get weren't getting enough money or they got a better gig you know offered, the PA company had been offered a better mm. gig so uh, you know we're sort of standing around twiddling our thumbs you know and there's, there's a few people there weren't very many people there but there's a, maybe 15 people there some people from Japan though there's some um, who were in town just buying buying up you know, this hot industrial stuff um, they're in town and uh but we're sort of twiddling our thumbs, thinking, oh, how are we going to do this gig? So we, 
Anna Carolina says, yeah. Yeah, Dom, you've got that huge PA. He got this, he got this PA system in his in this tiny little room. He was he was in this squatted um, uh tower block. And he got he got this huge PA system just in his room that he was playing his SPK records on to himself, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, it's bloody huge that when he got home. So we sort of got somebody in a car to go and pick this up from the other side of London and bring it back, played the gig there uh, with them. And so there was like, might have been 15 people there. So I think that's where I met, probably met, uh, I think George Valls is probably there. Glenn Wallace was probably there. Brian Williams was definitely there, Lust Maud. Uh, yeah, I think I got to know Jeff Rushton, um, John Balance, as he was formerly called, when he was at school because he was doing a fanzine while he was at school. Mm. So, I was, in so touch it, was, with it was one of those, it was that time when the audience and the performers, everyone was involved, involved and active in some way or another, whether or not it was a project. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was an active Certainly, yeah, yeah. There community. wasn't an audience. There wasn't an audience, right? Really. That, yeah, it was, that's it was right. Participa- yeah. It was all participants. Participate. Yeah. That's what participating. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that was yeah. the thing that punk. I mean, punk rock was in, almost was very, very participate participatory. And I suppose this sort of that sort of focus came through that way. I mean, punk was going on on the TV by by that time, so maybe it was losing that participatory ness. But yeah, I mean, everybody was doing doing. Uh, Doing that stuff, everybody was sort of highly involved in that sort of stuff, and I suppose, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose t- to to a certain extent in their own communities, they'd be they'd be they'd be the outsiders, they'd be the eccentrics or whatever, but they'd sort of gravitate, you know, from these villages. I mean, Brian Williams lived in this uh, small town in Wales, you know, and he was working in a paint factory when I when I knew him, but uh, you know, he was he was he had this throbbing gristle obsession and uh, and then the SBK obsession and from that obsession he, he developed this relationship with Graham in, in SBK and sort of ran you know he joined the band or, and ran the label from that and then went over to where you are to 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 work with or work for Graham and you know that's sort of how that that, how that happened from this sort of mm. small begin but uh, yeah just these really sort of pockets of uh, Maybe obsessive isolation, I suppose. Yeah, but certainly, yeah, yeah. What uh, what do you think it was about industrial music that sort of made it the perfect platform for you to focus on these things that that we see in your collage and in your music? The the mind control, uh, psychiatric industry, and uh, you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, atrocities, war, like. It, it was. Uh, I think it was. Just, I think that was a context, really. I think so. Passing through this, I think this is sort of. This is kind of a. It is actually it's still running through what I'm doing now. Actually, that's all running through through what I do now. I mean, I, I uh, my my day jobs with the mental health trust. I was working in the psychiatric wards, work, working uh, working with uh, in a in a in a music project with with people who had long term psychiatric conditions. I was doing that like ten years back. So, so I think I'm sort of still involved in the same sort of activist. I don't know. It's a it's a response to environment, really. It's a it's an ex, it's I suppose it's sort of a sensitivity to to the environment and and to the uh, 
to the factors that are work, at work in the environment. And I think it's a desire not to aesthetic it away, if you want, to make it into, um, not to make it into consumables, if you see what I'm, well, I suppose it is made into consumables, but to um, keep a, a sort of raw, a raw relationship with it and, and then investigation. Because uh, I think it's, I've written this down, exploration. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an exploration, really. And I think what, what, what I've done, I think what's kept me on the periphery and what sort of prevented me from sort of uh, a career, from having a career, I mean, I, defy, I would say what, what the way I go about things is probably a practice, but it's sort of more of an anti-career than it is a career, just the way I, I go about things. So, I mean, for me, it's a personal exploration and trying to understand the world and relate to to relate and engage with the world and to, to relate with physical objects and to relate with culture and to, to help form and deform that culture, mutate that culture and possibly, you know, to make it into something which, uh, um, which is probably better, just a better way of living really, just trying to find a better way of living with it. than what's provided, you know, that engage, engaging with it rather than uh, being fed it. Right, yeah. right. Okay. The early era tissue of lies, fruiting body, it will end up morphing a bit. The label's going to change from sterile to earthly delights. Sonically, things are going to start to change. Yeah. How did this development come about? I mean, it feels like at a certain point, especially spirit flesh, stone face. Caroline's solo record, the label becoming mm -hmm. Earthly Delights. It seems like there's a marker of change there. Was that something that you were ready for change? Did it happen naturally? Were you just like, you know what? We're we're yeah, we're cutting this and we're moving on to this new thing. How did that come about? Do you know, I think it's a combination of factors. I, I, there was a relationship. There was definitely a relationship factor because we stopped being a couple at, at, at 1983. We stopped. We continued working together, and we stopped being a couple. So that was some changes happened. Right. Uh, I Caroline didn't really like being on stage. She didn't like the, the live performances. So she tried. She was very very good on the te technological side of things. And uh, I mean, she was actually a, a telecommunications engineer later. She was, oh, wow. you know, yeah, you know, she was like the, 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 the first telecommunications. I think she's the only one in London at what time, the, the first female one in London. And then she was like the, mm. for the south of Manchester, like she was the woman who climbed up these poles and she was putting in telephone telephone cables and putting in early warning systems for, for nuclear attack as well. She's doing this sort of top secret work mm. for the, for the civil defenses, which, you know, we're living under, we were living under threat of nuclear annihilation. Then. I mean, there was cold war was raging, you know, so there was no mistaken that that was, that was in our minds at that time in, in the eighties, definitely. So, uh, yeah. So, there was a sort of an intensity, I suppose. But um, how long do you keep that intensity up? How you know do, do you keep that going? You know, uh, 
do you keep banging your head against the wall or or do you just I think to a certain extent I without trying to you develop skills through doing a thing over and over you develop mm-hmm. skills and um, I mean one thing I found out is if I put my fingers down like that it made a sound on a keyboard which was agreeable <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> like <laughs> so I, I, I did that you know and that sort of started to structure things and you know uh it was a drowning drowning a sea of bliss i mean there's these two sides to that uh like on one side we're using the, the tape loops i mean it's a structurally so it's manipulating noise and and feedback systems and uh lots of media resor- uh sources from documentary films and there's uh, uh animals in distress on there and there's um uh, children in distress and distressed people on it uh but so because we're trying to try to make a sort of breakthrough through that you know sort of make a breakthrough through the pattern and to sort of uh through that breakdown sort of break breakthrough to the other side for it to be like a purging of uh, this uh apocalyptic something apocalyptic it's just like something apocalyptic's happening around you or about to happen um but also using the same tape loops and using the same electronic instrumentation and, and uh, repetitive rhythms, you can actually structure something in, in a more in a way that's sort of agreeable as well and sort of and very natural way of putting it together without it being fey and whimsical. It can have that strength of nature without having the sort of whims, whimsy of. Uh, I don't know, thatch cottages, you know, and uh, cream teas. Um, it can have that sort of edge of rural life because rural life is tough. You know, rural life is hard. You know, it's uh, dealing with the elements is it, it, tough, and uh, and nature is very nature is very 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 powerful. Um, and I think the whole thing was is actually uh, this. Uh, advanced human technology and how it affects the human psychological system and how it affects the world and this sort of feedback loop. And uh, I think this apocalypse was sort of happening. And I think that's why I chose the the name Earthly Delights for, for like the next phase, because it's from this Hieronymus Bosch right. painting, mm-hmm. because all the, all the uh, delights of your lived life you're, you're you're tortured with them in in the next life. You know these uh, frivolous musicians are tortured with having these uh, flutes stuck up their asses. You know, and yeah, it, that sort of a thing. You know, you're tortured with uh, what you found delightful in um, your previous life. The sort of very moralistic um, tale, and uh, it's looking at those sort of excesses. And I suppose I am. I mean, I'm really quite a contemplative. I'm quite contemplative as well, you see. So there's a lot of, um, I think there's a, a lot of thought going on. You know, it wasn't sort of, uh, you know, it, it wasn't sort of uh, trying to make an impression. It was sort of, it was an exploration rather than trying to make an impression. This was things that I found, generally found horror, horrifying. You know, it was not done for entertaining purposes. This is an exploration of these patterns that these control patterns, I suppose. Um, 
So it was very much an exploration and it's sort of picking up on sort of various ideas of how to sort of uh, find a way to break through of these uh, patterns of control. I guess I've picked up some of them from improvised music theory, from uh, free improvised ideas of free improvisation and uh, free form, you know, happenings sort of a thing. That Mm. was the real happenings that were happening in the 60s, like uh, trying to levitate uh, the Pentagon, this sort of thing, you know, an absurd reaction to um, an absurd world. But sort of in connecting with the absurd, you're probably connecting with uh, probably what's good in the world as well, you know. These records also seem to have uh, sort of an occult and spiritual influence on them. Is there anything that was drawing you that way for something like Stoneface or Spirit Flesh? Yeah, Stoneface. I mean, I think it's very much it. I was doing a lot of Tai Chi at the time, you see, and um, there's there's ideas from uh, Taoism and animism. Really, I was just sort of um, I was just seen as the world being um, the world being alive. I've uh, I've been a vegetarian since I was fifteen, and I sort of always when all, all the when all the all the work on here it's all very very strong on uh, on animal rights really, and sort of reclaiming uh, you know animals and the rest of nature has a right to to live independent. You know we're part of nature. You know it's not uh, it's not theirs for us to to uh, dominate really, and. Um, so that idea was there, and just just returning to uh, um, not really earthly delights. Also, that's medievalist, and it's this millennialism that they had in um, about was it? I think about eleven hundred or something. They thought that this is a millennium. This is the end of the world. The end of the world is coming. We've got plague everywhere. We've got plague. It's a bit like now, isn't it? We've got plague mm-hmm. and pestilence everywhere. You know, um, and. Uh, this is sort of very. The measurement. This was really like this end apocalyptic vibe was going on in the eighties. It's continued though. That's, that's a that's a strange thing. It's it's continued. You know, it's sort of it's even more so now, isn't it? With the you know, COVID everywhere. You know, and the, the you know restrictions and the rise of the far right and all this sort of thing. It's um, it's it's continued. The, the same issues are, are are there. You know, but. Uh, I suppose you focus on different, different things, and certainly by focusing on, um, I mean, this a lot of this image, a lot of this imagery in here. I mean, I, f- I find it deeply disturbing, and uh, it does sort of point you, point you to a point of, uh, you know, you, yeah, you mean it. You know, this, this is sincere stuff, and it's all, it, uh, it's. It breaks you down, really. It's, 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 uh, you know, you go through a, a psychic breakdown when, when you sort of pass through that. And also getting older and, um, you know, different preoccupations. And you think, well, I've banged my head against the wall doing it this way. I'll try it more quietly, maybe, or try it at a different different rate or just try it in a different way. Yeah. But it's, it's just continuing an exploration, really. The whole, the, it is continuous, but it's... It, but uh, the emphasis has sort of changed, if you see what I mean. Well, and it mm-hmm. continues to this day because recently you've been releasing these great minimal works uh, through your band camp. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And 
this seems to be another new era of exploration. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't really know why I'm doing it as nocturnal emissions. I mean, I'm asked for it's sort of, it's a bit contrarian as well, actually, because I suppose somebody in their right mind would call each facet of this a different. They give each project a different name. I mean, there's they? different ways. There's <laughs> definitely different ways to think about that. Mm-hmm. It's something that we talk about a lot. The idea of do you change the project name or does the do does the project name is that the framework and where you continue and and develop your sound? It's it's yeah. a back and forth thing. There's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. I sort of like that it's been nocturnal emissions. I think it's mm-hmm. I think there's something to it where you can get something like tissue of lies, something like magnetized light. Yeah. Now something like minimal works and while there's you can see you can see a, a progression that happened within the frame of nocturnal emissions. Yeah. Yeah. Like- God. I was going to say the collage is also the through line, whether it be like visual or, or yeah. sonic or, or, you know, something of that nature. I think it does connect all of the works. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is, that is, I mean, that is, that is consistent. I mean, that's been consistent with me since I was, you know, little, you know, t- you know a child, that collage, cutting things out and, yeah, repurposing them. We do want to make sure to point everybody to the nocturnal missions band camp it's extensive band, band camp. camp yes yeah. very yeah. extensive oh yes get in there of, yeah definitely. of course the day this episode comes out i think the final band camp friday of the year is happening so obviously oh. we want to we always send people mm-hmm. to make sure to directly support artists and labels through that it's the best way to do it these days and yeah. nigel puts up the discographies up there the new stuff's up there is there, is there going to be something new for this friday <laughs> This Friday, um, yeah, Cold Saw. This is going to be on Sterile Records because I revived Sterile Records. This awesome. is this is great. All right. Cool. Do you know him? No. Do not know. Do not know that project. Ah, it's, from, it's from Finland. Ah, check this one out. Then he's from Finland. He lives in Finland. He makes uh, he makes circuits. He makes uh, makes his own stuff. So a brand awesome. new sterile records cassette. Now this is the yeah. first one since if everything changed over to Earthly Delights. No, I, I revived this uh, this year. Okay. Oh, okay. so you've been yeah. doing it under mm. sterile? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I've uh, sort of revived sterile records. I put about five records out. I've uh, what did I do? First of all, I, I did a reissue. Oh, I forgot what I've done now. <laughs> uh, look up sterile records and it'll tell you there like, you go hey! yeah, yeah. yeah that's it i sort of picks up where i left i put out a recording by my brother which i originally accorded uh, originally intended to release in 1983 and never oh. actually did it so i put that out you know, sometimes yeah. sometimes it takes labels a minute to get your record out. Sometimes <laughs> it takes a couple months. Sometimes yeah. it takes a year. Sometimes it takes over 30 years. So you just <laughs> never yeah, know. Yeah, All yeah. that matters yeah, is yeah, you still yeah, yeah. have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got there in the end. So, yeah, I got so I got that out. I mean, it's, you know, it's compl- by the time it's sort of completely lost interest and forgotten about it. And he's doing something completely different. It's completely, you know, uh, uh, 
What else? Then Echoplex, uh, who's uh, a project. He lives. He lives in Bristol. Who I, who I just met. Um, he's he plays. I mean, say the the big influences would be Cabaret Voltaire with him, but he's sort of, he's mm. uh, he's taken that. He's a, a solo performer. I've I've seen him perform a couple of times. A nice guy from Bristol. Um, so I did work a oh, bit with him. It's like he's a, a lot younger than me, you see, and uh, but he sort of picked up on these sort of uh, elements that I was picking up with, like way back. So you know, you find that sort of connection. Uh, and then yeah, this cold so I mean, he's I mean, he's relatively young compared to me. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, everyone, make sure to go mm-hmm. check out the new stuff, pick up some old stuff, whatever you do. Yeah, and of course. The yeah, new get that one. book, <laughs> a fantastic book, just a really comprehensive look at the flyers, the artwork, the mm-hmm. thoughts going behind nocturnal emissions from back in the day. Now, before we do let you go, this has been incredible. I feel like we could talk forever. We'll obviously just have to have you back on. Mm-hmm. Now, this was so great. As we said before, everyone pick up the book, pick up new sterile releases, mm-hmm. pick up old sterile releases, whatever strikes your fancy nigel this ruled thank you so much we're definitely gonna have to do this again yeah definitely yeah thank you all right thank, thank you, you for that. thank you for yeah thank you for your company etc yeah no, it's lovely absolutely. to lovely to meet you absolutely, absolutely yes <laughs> you've been listening to noise extra noise extra is brought to you by chondritic sound a home to noise artists for over 17 years by verdant weapons maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noise extra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise. <laughs>